Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Daryl Urbanski, your host as always. And today we are joined by Ivan Neo, a strategic thinker and seasoned CFO. Ivan boasts an illustrious career spanning the, mar the market research, life sciences, and technology sectors. Ivan currently is steering the financial helm at GFK as VP of Finance for APAC. Ivan is known for transforming strategic visions into tangible results. With stints at IQ via Asia Pacific, DXC Technology, and Cisco, Ivan's expertise is unparalleled. A proud alumni of Nanyang Technological University, he's not just about numbers. He's a people leader who prioritizes doing the right thing. I've asked him to join us here today to share his story, plus talk about venture capital, mentoring, and nonprofit leadership. Ivan, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you, Daryl, for the illustrious introduction. Yeah, it's an honor and pleasure to have you here. Now, before we jump into what you've accomplished in that, I want to know, like, how did you even get involved in finance and business? Is this a career? Are you following in your parents' footsteps? Were your parents entrepreneurs or in finance? Or are you doing something completely original? No, I, I think finance has always been something I like from the word get-go because numbers has always been my thing. I'm a little bit artistic, but numbers is unparalleled because numbers gives you a sense of how to view things in a very ambiguous way. From an entrepreneur perspective, I don't think me being in Singapore as a Chinese, a third generation Chinese from immigrants, parents, that heritage does give you a little bit of a risk-taking because that's why they left China and come over to Southeast Asia. So I think there is an entrepreneurship in whatever that was doing. And then I think that DNA sort of wrap off. Got it. Yeah, I appreciate that. I can respect that. I respect that a lot. I was thinking about things like the golden ratio when you were talking about numbers and how, and I don't know if there's a tangent, I'm not a mathematician. But their math does seem to be the language of the universe. And so when you said that, I felt that's what I thought of when you talked about how numbers, they bring clarity to things. And I just, that's just what popped into mind. So your parents came to Singapore as immigrants from China. Did they have small businesses when they got to Singapore? How did they survive? Not my parents. I think I'm the third generation Chinese. Oh, sorry. Like my granddad came from China. He did a little bit of business here and there, not, nothing big, but just some honest living right. just to get out of the, the yeah. hardship in China. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I can respect that. As an expat from Canada, I can respect that. And then what did your parents do? Did they have businesses? My, yes. My parents run a little bit of a hawker business selling food when I was young. But they're retired now, so they're enjoying their lives. The entrepreneurship comes from there where they have to make a living, make good of whatever they have. So what was your career like? Like, how did you first get into it? Was Cisco the first right out of university? You went and worked for Cisco or were you, did you get involved in businesses and other, in other ways before then? Now, I, I got into Cisco right after my university as a management trainee. I was lucky to be one of the two fresh grads joining Cisco. Cisco started out at that era. I'm talking about 20 years ago with the most number of millionaire employees. Wow. And I, I joined them in a very weird timing because they were at the cross juncture where they were trying to be a 50 billion company at that point in time. So Cisco was a place where I really appreciated them giving me the chance to be the management trainee in APAC. And when you say Cisco had the most millionaire employees, is that because of stock options? Is that I'm just curious, how does, that would be a great feather in any company's cap to be able to yes, say yes. that 
Yeah. It was this options. Prior to that, Microsoft was the one with the most number of millionaire employees for saw options. Just give you context. When I joined, Cisco's share price was went through 11 split and they were trading at about $56. Okay. Got it. Got it. Which is fantastic. I think that almost is going to be, I'm just kind of future pacing here, but I think that's part of where the world is going in the future is having more, trying to get more of an ownership mentality out of staff. We have more automation in that. We can talk about that later, but that's just a maybe foreshadowing when I ask about your thoughts on the future. So after Cisco, you were there for a year or two years, I think. And then what did you really learn? Were there, what were the biggest ahas from your experience working with Cisco? I think it's a culture shock coming out from academic institutions into the working world. It was, and someone as, as big, as, as professional as Cisco was not easy. Everyone was so good at what they're doing and you can't stay away from politicking where people try to outdo each other given the smartness of what they're doing. And I do recall this ongoing thought of it's for someone to run the payroll in Cisco, the requirement was a master's degree. That was how good they are in trying to put things into perspective. And they could afford at a point in time to get the best in the industry to do every single piece of that work. But right. what that also makes is that everyone gets too ambitious on what they're doing. And so from that young age, I was at the receiving end, but I see a lot of you know, trying to put all the good and experienced people in the one pot may not necessarily be the best thing for the organization. You got to have some players, leaders, and some followers. Too many chiefs, not enough Indians. That's what we used to say in Canada. It sounds That's what it sounds like. Okay, but it sounds like the culture made a big impact on you and that ambitious, achievement-oriented focus, it sounds, was a big impact. And then so what was the next stage of your career and what were the biggest lessons that you feel you learned from where you went next? I spent a little bit of time with Autodesk. Their flagship product, obviously, is the architectural design CAD kind of software product called CAD. It was a, a very very good outfit. It was small in Singapore at that point in time. It were about 50, 60 people. It is now more than 2,000 people in Singapore uh, with wow. the research headquarters here. So I learned <laughs> a different lesson, more from a personal perspective. I learned never to sell your stop options uh, <laughs> when you leave the company. Because I, I remember selling off all my share options at about $12.50. It is now trading at more than $200 after oh, three split. Ouch. Ouch. Should have would have credit. In that space, I, I, it was a painful. Yeah. I had a Bitcoin once upon a time, like 15 years ago or whatever that was. And I was like, ah, my space was once big. <laughs> you know, you, YouTube started off as a dating site. I don't know. I'm going to get my couple hundred bucks now. <laughs> yeah. Oops. 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 Yeah. Anyhow, well, lessons learned, right? Should have would have could have. Got it. That's a good lesson. Never sell the stock in the company. And I think that's an important asset because the stock, those are supposed to be long-term investments. I think when you're building a portfolio, you want to play long-term games with long-term people. And so that's almost what you're saying. You got in at a company, you had a feel for the company, unless you thought the company was going to fail in the short term. Yeah. That's what I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that's what I'm hearing from you. If I were to say it back to you. Yep. And so after that, you went on to IQ via Asia Pacific, right? Yes, while I joined IMS Health, it was later mm. acquired and merged with Quintel so for MyQVIA. So IMS really is the company that I joined. It was a first foray into the market research space. Right. Market research 
from a data business perspective, if I were to use like a minute or two just to describe yeah. to you what it means is if you walk into a 7-Eleven today, and we all know 7-Eleven, and you go to cashier and say, whoever threw away the receipts today in that little bin, pass it to me. And if you collate the whole day's thrown away sales ticket and pull it into an Excel, you pretty much could gather what item was sold at what time for the day. Do that repeatedly for a week. You pretty much could see some pattern on who buy what at what point. And you do that for a month, three months, a quarter, you get a pattern of when. You can even assess when do they replenish their bread, when do they do their milk. So that wasted data that people throw away becomes something that's very powerful that you now possess. You can actually go back to the seller of those chips or drinks and say, you know what, I know which day, what time your products are selling the best. So that in a nutshell created that data business. Now imagine this, right? It's not just one 7-Eleven, but you go across the entire Philippines in Manila. Yeah. Getting all the 7-Elevens information, you pretty much have a data business going. I love that. Yeah, I've used the 7-Eleven as an example in the past, talking with clients about how we get paid in relationship to the size of the problems that we solve. So if the problem that you're solving is how does somebody make sure people don't shoplift? That's almost the minimum wage job. Someone's got to empty the box, put it on the shelf and scan the barcode and collect the money and make change and make sure people don't walk out. That's one level of problem. Then you've got someone that manages the team that manages that single location. That's a higher level problem. They earn a higher pay for that. But if your job is how do I supply these hundred communities in an efficient manner without wasting a ton of money on inventory, that's going to sit on the shelf for days, weeks, months without moving you know what I mean? And be prepared and anticipate trends in the future, which is what made me think of that. Cause you're talking about tracking the sales of 7-Eleven. That is such a higher level problem that you're solving. So naturally you should earn, you would earn a bigger income to solve that problem. So I love that example and the power of market research. I think it's something we beat the drum of a lot on this show. I, I think we talked before, I told you about how I hired 10 research assistants to help me go through all the academic literature. Market intelligence was one of eight critical success factors that we identified. And there's just the laundry list is long of businesses that took their eye off of the market and it to their detriment. The example I love most is Blockbuster because I think it's an extreme example. They were a $6 billion a year company. They could have hired any talent. They could have developed any technology and they were taken out by a startup called Netflix because they lost touch with the market. Netflix was delivering movies to your house like pizza and picking them up. Whereas Blockbuster, after a long day standing as a waiter or cutting hair or whatever, you're a mechanic, you're on your feet all day, whatever, you just want to relax. You don't want to go to a store. You don't want to have 700 options and stand there for longer and then wait in line to check out and then be billed because you're so busy, you can't get the thing back on time. And this is just a simple example of how market research was, the, in one way, market research and technology was what made the difference and ultimately Blockbuster went bankrupt and Netflix is this huge behemoth now. I think they're doing something like 10x the revenue with a quarter of the team or maybe less the staff that Blockbuster had. So can you speak? It sounds like you've worked a lot in technology and market research industries. I know we haven't gotten further in your career, but uh, GFK, I think, is also right. It's a business data, business intelligence. Is that 
Yep. So GFK is on the business intelligence as well in a similar form. IMS was tracking the drugs, the oncology drugs, the cancer patients treatments. And GFK was in tracking of the market research in a different space. They were tracking the technology and durables product more of the electronics devices, but the, the principal and the architect in collecting data and putting them into useful reports for our clients, very similar in nature. Mm. And you hit right there on the spot there on the technology. Now today we are at the crossroad of the brick and mortar way of dealing with market research as well as technology, particularly more pronounced in the space of the electronic goods, because you and I can go and walk into a brick and mortar store, call it Harvey Norman, any other stores to look at the size of the TV screens, check out the pixel and configurations and the sexiness of the screens, the curvatures and everything. But most likely you and I are going to buy it through an online platform app. Right. That's yeah. The brick and mortar are more the showrooms now. Versus the actual, what the, I think it's the zero moment of truth or something that Google calls it, that moment when you actually commit. And I agree with that. And one of the things that you talked about as well was the change in data. So there's the offline data, but now we're getting what's way more powerful in my perspective is the behavioral, the behavior, like a focus group will tell you what you want to hear, but behavioral data tracks what was and what is. And that is, is a way better predictor. And then, of course, if you put into that things like search data, I, I was in Singapore on my way to Binton Island to speak at a mastermind group there at Club Med Indonesia. And I remember when we were there, we were going through, I just had a brain fart. Oh, I was searching the top 10 things to do in Singapore. And I remember when I did that search, I'm probably never going to do this search again. And I bet people that live in Singapore if they ever do this search, they only ever do it once or twice. So I looked up the keyword search data in AdWords and I recognized, I think there's something like 50, 60,000 searches every month. And I go, that is representative of churn, monthly churn. People with intent to purchase, to do things around the town. And you're never going to search that again and again. And so that is such a powerful predictor because people, again, you would survey someone, they tell you what you, they think, you know, what they think. But when you take a Google search, people don't realize I'm alone in my room. I don't think anyone's watching. I'm putting my real thoughts into that. And then you add into that layer on top, social data, social behavior, social trends, social conversations. I think the intersection of those three things is incredibly powerful. Sorry, I, I got on a soapbox there, but you know, <laughs> no, yeah, exactly right. I think this is what makes market research so interesting. Nearly all the market research companies started out trying to study buying behavior, consumer behavior. It's always the studying of that behavior that accumulated the data that is now gold mine. Yeah. But the change in buyer behavior you used to try to put products at the front end, the back end, high, low. Now we're talking about how do you create the picture where someone scrolling their phones will get instantly attracted? Is it a credit card discount that's going to cost them to buy? So the factors and the ways that influence the buying behavior is changing rapidly. And that's what making market research very relevant in consuming yeah. the technological aspect of the business. Yeah, I agree. And I think there's two sides to this too. There's the front end, which is that what gets the person to make the initial purchase. And then there's the back end where you're mapping out a customer journey. So as an example, one customer, we turned $50,000 in paid ad spend into 212,000 in front end sales, but almost $750,000 back end sales total. And it was because we analyzed their customer database 
and they, they had a huge portfolio of products, but we analyzed all the hurdle rates and the most likely purchase path. And we came up with what I called the golden brick road, which was the most likely six uh, and in order, first purchase, second purchase, third, fourth, fifth purchase items and days between each purchase. And then we went and found their best performing email campaigns for this and just basically set it up. So anytime somebody bought, if it was only their first purchase, I think it was 46 days between first and second purchase. If by day 46, they hadn't bought the second thing, we triggered the email campaign to offer that second thing. And that was part of how we did it. Because once we set up that golden brick road, then it was about bringing new people in on that front end. And that's almost where you're talking about what gets more people through the door when analyzing. And it depends on the size of company. If you're a small business, it's very different than if you're a big business like an international conglomerate that's got multiple lo locations, but the principles, I think it's the same. I think the tactics change frequently. The strategies sometimes change, but the principles almost never change. So can you speak to some of like, you've been in finance so long, you mentioned talking about, I wrote it down here. It was something you said, you're making useful reports. As far as all your years in finance, what are some of the most useful reports? Is it just the P&L, the balance, the cash flow? Or is there nuances to these? And is there is runway or projections? Like, what do you feel for the listeners that are here right now, if they don't have a background in finance, what do you feel are some of the most important reports to see in trying to guide and steer one of the, your ship? Yeah. So internally, obviously, based on my background, I have to look after the cash flow, especially during times of crisis, like the COVID cash is king. So cash flow is very important at some point in time, but P&Ls, cash flow statements, balance sheets, these are the key fundamentals you run a business. But um, the real gist of running ahead right in front of the business are the KPIs, right? In terms of the PE ratios, when you want to assess a company. And I'll share with you a little bit on, on my past experience working for a private equities setup. But I, I am very much into looking at the utilizations of how we yes. are able to pipeline conversion. If we have got 50,000 prospects, how fast we got to get those because the sales effectiveness of every businesses needs to be churned out in a way that is healthy for the business. Look, I have I operate on the mantra that if there's no sales through the door, it's useless having that cash register. Right. Yes. If I have to make my finance team such selling in order to generate the cash, I will gladly convert some of my FTEs or headcounts into sales headcount because sales has to be the key primary focus. Right. If we don't support sales, there's really no need for finance or HR right. or anything else. Right. right. So I think right. that matrix running that sales and trying to facilitate more sales and enable them to sell better and more and more efficiently must be the key focus in any business. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And that really feeds in to the research that we did, at least when it comes to money management. The things that we identified as really important with money management was running a lean operation being debt-free as best as possible. But then you mentioned capacity utilization was critical, was so critical. And that's in employee capacity training, in the financial management, in, in both terms of labor intensity and productivity, capital intensity. And then when what do you do with the money that you have? For us, our research had said that you need to be spending it on having high quality products and service. You need to be spending on research and development, but you also need to be heavily investing in asset and sales growth. And that's different. That could be patents, right? That could be real estate. Those could be machinery to have a more optimized, streamlined operation. 
But like you just said, leaning in on investing and not just R&D for high quality products and services, but for asset and sales growth. So the sales growth, obviously, to expand your market share and market penetration, but also assets, which pr pr protect your operation. It almost is like a moat, like when you had a castle and they would build a moat and a fortress around to protect it. And I think that's something a lot of business owners probably don't even consider. If you cut hair, what can you buy that makes, or what can you offer? What can you, what sort of assets would protect you from somebody else just saying, hey, I have a chair. And when I was in Vietnam, I was so shocked. They have all these barbers on the street. They just have a chair and a mirror and a pair of scissors. And then you see some of these chains that have their indoors. This one's just out on the street. Like what, there's no protection. And so what could you buy? What are the assets that you could acquire? Maybe you have a hair salon and you have an indoor playground like what McDonald's used to do. And that's a bit of your asset protection because then the kids can play while mom's getting her hair done or something like that. I love that so much. Now, what do you feel are some of the most important habits that you've seen of the companies that you've worked in and even those that are most successful? in those companies? What sort of habits do you feel are mission critical? Yeah, so I think just leveraging off my background in the latest venture with GFK, where it was a private equity company, I think more, instead of saying it a habit, obviously we can talk about the habits of what are the principles, but from a finance perspective, obviously the mantra when we come into a private equity company is to get small, get healthy, and then you grow. So get small, get healthy. What does that mean? Because when we talk about a health habit, I, I think this is applying to many businesses as well, right? More often than not, you find a company trying to do too much. Yes. They try to sell all sorts of products, trying to satisfy everything, but that is not necessarily a good thing. we got to focus on your core competence, like the Baba story that you said. Everyone could set up a chair, and, but not many could think a little bit further what to protect someone from the elements or giving right. a weight waiting chair. So I think we got to go back and look at the business and focus on the core competence and cut out things that are far away from the core competence because you are entering into a space where you may be competing with someone else who is doing much better than you when right. you're away from your core competence. I love that. I love that. Focusing on your core competence. I love that. Get small, get healthy, then grow. I think that is so powerful. I think that's so powerful because a lot of people think sales is all I need. And we did say that sales is super important. But even if you just look at the top Fortune 500 companies over the last 50 years, the change at the top has been significant. And so the staying power is not what people think it is. And so that focus on what do you do really well? And almost like they say, inch wide, mile deep, it sounds better. Now, how does that translate? You've talked about private equity and venture capital a lot. How does that fit into people that are trying to, to partner, find private equity partners or are trying to get access to venture capital? Is there a translation from this in terms of how you show up? I think right now, given the change in the world, and I speak from the market research perspective, there is obviously a cross juncture where you need a lot more investment to make the, the traditional market research more relevant in terms of the platform of delivery, like what you say on the technology side, the thinking and the mentality of people's buying behavior are changing drastically. So you need a lot more investment to, to make yourself relevant. Mm. So in the past six years, when I'm with GFK and we are private equity owned, obviously we went through the pruning of the non-core products and then we tried to get smaller, focus on your core. 
Now the get healthy part is a little bit more tricky because it, it comes to prone. One is you got to keep an eye on the high margin product. And obviously that is where you keep the primatizations on your core product where no one else could touch you. How do you then market it and put it into the primatized category? And internally, to get healthy, it also means shedding off some fats in the organization. Right. And it's not just getting fats out. It's also about how do you transform the mindset on if they have been doing transactional accounting, how they become a business-focused kind of finance, right? And that comes with a lot of change in the mindset, including focus on compliance, focus mm. on, on, on trying to be a little bit more business-minded and business-conscious. So there is this mindset change when we're talking about healthy, we're no longer talking about just numbers, sales per head count, cost per head count. These are all good metrics, but the software of mentality coming in with that good mm. mind mentality and soul is also part of that getting healthy part. You're talking about culture, trying to cultivate a strong, strong kind of brand culture internally and values within. Exactly. So when I say get small, get healthy, apart from the numbers, there's also this cultural one team, one goal mindedness to go to. And it comes with a great leader who's able to paint that picture, that vision to bring that company together. And that's what the private equity company is all about, right? Trying to transform a company into a very focused outfit and then get into that direction before they grow big. And I think you're hitting on a key point here because some of this talks about key teamwork. Some of this is about collaboration and productivity within teams, but it also in terms of outsourcing, and I know you've got experience with all of those, do you have any tips for someone who's maybe starting out or struggling with this concept of trying to, maybe they've got a bigger team and they have to narrow down, maybe they're building their own first team, or maybe they're just trying to outsource effectively. Do you have any key tips in terms of trying to be, collaborate and be productive with a tight-knit group of people that are world-class at what they do? I, I think the fundamental is to outsource things that are repeatable. This this transactional repeatable work, someone could do it better, faster, and more efficient than you, push it out. But if it's something that's related to your business that is very core, that is customized to help you with your sales, keep it and keep it dear. Do not let it go because that is your core competence to build on. And someday, some way, someone may outsource their sales strategy to you to help them run it. So I would say, Go identify your repeatable work that someone else can do it better. Do not be afraid to let someone else standardize your process from a repeatable kind of work point of view. Be brave, be bold. You know, that that it takes a lot of courage to let go of some part of the business processes. But I think from an SME trying to grow to that big, bigger outfit perspective, you need to be able to trade that off. I love that. I love that so much. One of my first mentors, he had to sit me down. He had to go, Daryl. You need to recognize that everyone's going to be a beta version of you. And what he was trying to tell me is because it was my baby, my business, I felt I had to do everything and no one would do it and love it as well as I could. And so his kind of message in that was you have to lean into knowing that people aren't going to care for it as well as you. And so you have to look for specialization, specialized help as best as possible. And I just heard recently from a guy that I know that's doing, I think he's doing something like 20 million a year right now in the e-commerce space. And he said, one of the things that really helped his team and them liberate was they third, we third party everything that isn't mission critical. So he used different language than you did, but it was the same message. He's everything. I turned everything. I tried to turn everything, like get it all off my plate so I could focus on the things that I do best. And for him, that's the paid ads and his database marketing and all that stuff. 
and the, the logistics, the packing, the shipping, all this stuff, even the products, he tends to, he doesn't, they don't even necessarily create their own products. What they focus on is the specific market and sourcing products to serve that market. And so it just kind of speaks to what you just said, that you really want to want to get small, get healthy, then grow. And I love how you said, let someone else standardize your, pro- be okay with letting somebody else standardize your processes. That almost as a business owner myself, I was like, oh, like I could just feel like, the, oh, like that, that like the fear of, oh, but you're giving that, but I get it. I get, there's a trust in there and you may, it may cost you more short-term because they have to make a profit off of that. But what you gain long-term is you gain your time and focus back and the freedom and the lack of having to manage that. And now trying to be detached from it and operate, it's like pilots. They have something called instrument rated pilots. So an instrument rated pilot is a pilot just operates from the data dashboards. And that's almost what you're talking about. Outsource it. Yeah. And And, make it number. And you get scalability as well. Can you speak to that? How do you get scalability? So I think when we get small, get healthy, the healthy part is not just about getting it profitable, but also to reinvest and skill it in such a way that the next phase that comes in to grow has to be relevant, right? When you get someone to standardize your process, you get someone to, to do all your repeatable stuff. Now that scalability that they must provide must be in line with your business because now you have pay, pay per consume kind of model, right? And if your business is growing, that scalability is there for you to switch on and off. I love that. I love that. I love that. I love that. That's just a great, that's such a great tip. So now what do you feel are some of the biggest mistakes? Like you've been in your role for a long time. I'm sure you have lots of friends that are small business owners or they're working at other companies. We've talked about a lot of great ideas and great concepts, but just to really hit the nail on the head, what would you say is a list of the three to five biggest mistakes that you see businesses or entrepreneurs making in general? I think The biggest mistake in my view was the emotional attachment to the founders tend, especially when they're successful, tend to be so closely associated with not just the product, but with everything. And like you said, the difficulty to detach and the trust issue becomes a very emotional, sentimental attachment that you cannot let go, right? As a professional, you need to be able to detach yourself and say what's good for the business because you cannot be across a business. You can be across a business that is five or 10 million, but if it grows to 100 million, you cannot be running it the same way as you do when you first founded it. So I think that emotional detachment needs to be very carefully managed. Second is the people. I think people runs the business. There are a lot of mistake make in, in, in investing people who are close friends or you think they know what you are thinking, right? I think we need to walk away from that again relationship and look at how the business should go in a certain way because there must be a certain barriers when you get someone to run your business. There must be a certain authoritative understanding meeting of minds more than meetings of that relationship Hmm. so i think these two are the very key shortfall for many entrepreneurs on the sme front i love that and i agree wholeheartedly wholeheartedly on that when you said what's good for the business i think the key important part here is that like a lot of people they go into business because it's something that they enjoy somebody likes baking and so they decide to open up a bakery store and then they design their logo and they pick their a location that's close to where they live. 
and they make all their favorite things to make. And then they invite all their friends to come, Hey, we're open for business. And they, all the friends come and make their obligatory first time purchase. And then that's it. Those friends made that purchase. Now that it's not convenient for them, that they're not really in market to buy this regularly. And then the business owner is faced with this problem of, I have a five-year lease and I don't have a market to serve. And now they have a product with no market fit or they find product market fit, but they don't have founder, product market founder fit in the sense that the founder is not interested. The founder has no passion in it. And so it's a, it's, I think it's a yin yang that the founder needs to be involved and love what they do. But at the same point, when you go through a McDonald's drive-through, they're never like, hey, sorry, Sally isn't feeling well today. The drive-through is closed. The business exists to serve the market, to serve the customer, to solve a problem in the community. And so when you talk about detaching yourself emotionally, it's recognizing that almost like having a small child, this child came from me, is of me, but now it has a life of its own and its own life purpose. And for a business, that purpose should be to solve problems in the market, in the community, and in a way that allows it to, to sustain long-term, right? It shouldn't, I don't think it should be a parasite that feeds off society. I think it needs to be a symbiotic relationship where it receives and generates a profit. You know, it generates more than the sum of its parts, so to speak. So it can continue to innovate and solve that problem for society. And that's where it becomes a real win-win relationship. And so for that, like you mentioned, you have to have emotional attachment, but then you also have to have the right people. It can't be nepotism. You have to have the right people in the right place to do the best job ultimately at the end of the day. And I think that is, that's such a great, that's such a great tip. So where do you think things are going to be in five, 10 years? If you had a crystal ball and I asked you to look 10 years, 15 years into the future, because right now the world is in a state of flux. The world's always been in a state of flux, but right now I think everybody on the planet has been touched by the pandemic. Everybody on the planet has, for the most part, has had their lives touched at least with the thought of what AI might do for them. Big data is everywhere. Censorship, influence on social media, suppression, thoughts of ideas. There's a lot happening in the world. Where do you think this is going 10, 15 years from now? I can't see that far, Darren, to be honest. I think 10, 15 years is anybody guess, but I think given the geopolitical issues that we have, I think the world is going to be a little bit more isolated than it was five, 10 years ago, where everyone flies everywhere. The detachment is going to create a little bit of a tension every now and then, and really depend on the flavor of the day on what U.S. and the Chinese and the Indians are trying to muscle through. We probably have to navigate carefully across these big superpowers. But if you, if I have a five-year trend, I think the chat GPT fed has died off. Yep. AI, can it really replace human? We are very cautious with it. In five years, can it take away all our work? I don't think so. I yeah. think people are now more inward looking, especially after the, the COVID lockdowns where people now readjusted their priorities in life. It's not just about work, but it's also about family. Yeah. Things can go off quite easily, quite quickly. So I think people are still going to treasure a lot of their time, the traveling. So the service industry will probably take a, a sort of a, a takeoff. I think homes, maybe, because you know people have already started making their own homes a little bit more cozier, nicer. Mm -hmm. You can work from home. So I think that that train has left. But 
a lot of inward looking self-actualizations and looking inwards any product that has to do with uplifting one's spirit and getting closer with the family is probably going to take off over the next three to five years is my view and any peripherals that supports that inward looking will probably be doing better than our traditional kind of business so let me paraphrase that back make sure i got it so you think people are going to value I don't want to say work-life balance as much, but they they want just paying the bills maybe isn't as much anymore. After COVID, I think a lot of people were faced with either health issues or the threat of catastrophe in one way or another, or their business was upset. And so now they want to earn an income with purpose as well. So they don't want to necessarily be stuck to the nine to five job that they don't like. So that means for employers that as far as you're not just hiring for a role, but you're also trying to set people up be comfortable. And I, I may be, I don't know if I'm paraphrasing properly, but that's what I heard from you from both sides of that. So in terms of people, what they're looking for and opportunities as well as experiences. And so you mentioned travel, like people want more experiences now. I think some of the, and this could be wrong, but the glitter of material wealth alone has fallen wayside. So people are going to value personal relationships more. It sounds like when you said that more isolated world or a little bit more detached, that there's going to be more of a focus on local economies and local suppliers for things as well. And that a lot of people got stuck at home for months, if not years on end. So the concept of having a home castle and really building that up is also going to be a booming industry. And then of course, there's a self-actualization. I think the whole world got a few weeks to sit at home and just watch the sun go up and down and start thinking about, we're just on this floating rock in the universe. What exactly are we doing here? The only thing that kind of addresses those inward questions and that path of self-discovery is a good adventure to be in as well. And then you talked about family unity as well. And I think that's where all the polarization of politics and that and the fear and just the things everyone's been through. I think those networks, our personal networks are going to be more valuable than before. Is that accurate? An accurate summary? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you summed it very well. I think the, the key is the prioritization has changed a little bit more than it used to be. And how they map out right now, I think we are still figuring our way out to see what matters. So for example, it's across all aspects of our life, right? Education, is it that important anymore? Do we mm. look at education as a means to, to learn just something or just get good grades? Right. I think that thinking has changed a little bit. And just about everything that we do, we have a slightly different mindset. Now, how that map out over the next three to five years, I think will determine where we are heading as a society, as an organization, even as a people coming together. So I think over the next three to five years, it will be very interesting how we chart our future together. Yeah, I think that's really well said. What are your thoughts on as far as trying to protect money? Because a lot of people are concerned about currencies, for those that aren't aware, a lot of the world's countries run on fiat money, which means let it be, which means it's worth whatever the government says it's worth. And I don't think people respect and recognize that a lot of the geopolitical issues that are arising are things like, I can only speak of Canada, I'm Canadian, and Canada in 2020 alone printed 20 years, or sorry, 50 years of their annual budget in one year alone. And so now you have this issue where when Canada wants to go buy whatever, avocados, dragon fruits, chairs from someone and the people, the farmer, the, the carpenters go, okay, what are you going to give me for these real world materials? Like this avocado has inherent value. It has nutritional value. It took a certain amount of time to produce. What are you going to give me? And I go, oh, I'm going to give you a handful of this Monopoly money. And they go, what is it worth? And I go, it's worth this much. And they go, I don't know about that because you just printed 
50 years of your annual budget in one year and it's not backed by anything. So how much is it really worth? And I think there's a lack of either acknowledgement or understanding that's part of what has caused some of the geopolitical issues that we're facing in the world right now. And for someone that's in your capacity, that's dealing obviously with finance and big companies and numbers, what should everyone buy Bitcoin? Should we, should I start stockpiling gold? How do you see what, yeah. What are your thoughts on navigating the future? Yeah, so, so I think we, we got to go back to the fundamentals. I love Bitcoin. I have a little bit of it, but honestly, from a, a, a value creation point of view, Bitcoin was more of a hobby than something that really has got a inherent asset value. Mm. You're right. The world is going in a, a very weird direction. You have inflations in many places. <laughs> and then you have China just announcing that they're going to cut interest rates in, in, in their economy, where yeah. they are struggling to sell off all the houses. The real estate is in trouble once again. Yeah. I think the world is moving in a very haphazard manner. There isn't a one size fit all. It's really, like you said, what is the valuations of certain things? I will go back to the fundamentals from a finance perspective, right? In this uncertain world, I will put my money in the, in the assets commodity like gold, silver. Yes. And that would be the safest bet. And me being in Singapore, because of our solid fundamentals, Sing dollars is still one of the- I know. You, you're you one of the, I think one of the only countries in the world that has no debt. Am I, yep. Is that right? Well, we have very little debt. The, the government is using our own money to save up the savings to build things, right? So they- I want to hug whoever's in charge of that for just avoiding all the corruption, all the profiteering. But like, what a brilliant, just a little like moment of respect- for that, where all these politicians, all these other countries just pilfered the coffers of all these other populations. Singapore was like, we're not doing that to our people. I just, I think I have nothing but respect for that. Sorry, I interrupted you. You're saying, come on. I'm, I'm very proud of that, that, that heritage, right? Mr. Lee Kuan, you did very well. He did us all very proud. So anyway, coming back to Singapore economy, because we have that strong fundamental, we are attracting a lot of ultra-rich putting their family offices here. It's seen a boom of what, seven, eight hundred percent of big family offices setting up in Singapore. I think that the value of Singapore as a safe haven for the ultra-rich is going to continue our value. So I think Sing dollars will be a good bet. Obviously, a lot of people are challenging the US dollars with the printing and fighting of inflation. There could be some fiscal stimulus that is shifting that, that dollar up and down. But in honesty, I think with the uncertainty we are going to have, and obviously I'm a more of a reset versus kind of guy, I will put it in the common commodities in gold or silver just to ride out this period before you, you decide where you want to place bets. Yeah, I love that. I mean, my I'm not a finance guy and I've never really been into stocks because I'm to me, it's just a piece of paper and I feel like I could be easily swindled. Some guy like, buy this paper, it's going to be worth Whereas I'm I know if marketing campaigns, what the ROI is, I've had marketing campaigns with a thousand percent ROI. I don't know any stock that could do that. Now, does it last through while you scale? We can debate, but I love what you're saying. What you said is things with an inherent asset value. So that means if you've got any sort of land, trying to make that land productive, if planting something livestock, even like I, I agree with you on Bitcoin hundred percent, but even if, again, you have land, if you set up some solar panels and some Bitcoin miners, now all of a sudden you have land that is a productive asset. And I think that's such a great mentality to have. And then the commodities, think gold, silver, but even the simple things that people need, like the fabric of society, like salt and pepper and coffee, 
Like these things are just, those are, those are the things that people are going to really value. Toilet paper. Whoosh. We all should have bought stock in toilet paper in 2020. We would have made a mint. So I think I agree exactly what you're saying. And the mindset almost has to, mindset has to shift where as inflation comes, I think food prices are personally are going to double uh, between now and this time next year with all the pressure and the wars and all the stuff going on. So anything that you can put in, like you talk about commodities, food, I just think that's great, great advice. Now, can you put a million dollars into a farm? Ah, like you could. It's, I know Bill Gates is buying up a ton of farmland, but I think that's where people need to think about it. That money sitting in a bank account is almost no good in a lot of instances where all it's going to do is lose its value. And so what you need to do is figure out how to make it flow into something that will produce more and grow with the value. I don't know if you want to edit or add or fix anything I just said, but those are my thoughts on that. So no, you're exactly right. I think we got to make the money count and make it productive. And we need to go back to the fundamental and say how and where and what things are going to build that inherent values. Bitcoin is a good parking spot, but it's more of a hobby, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I agree. I agree. I think that maybe the better message is asset-backed currencies. Like you talked about Singaporean dollar, you guys don't, you're not, you're not going to be affected by inflation that as much as everyone else will be, because you guys were like, Hey, we printed a bazillion of these. They're all worth one. And people going, okay, what is it based off of? And you just have empty pockets. Like, I don't know. It's not based on anything. So I just think there's any asset-backed currency is huge. And then people need to be looking at productive assets and fabric of society type commodities. I think that's just a great, a great place to put people because, and I think everyone should be growing a little bit of food right now. Unless you have an exorbitant income, I think it's a great idea, even if you're not gonna eat all of it, just to have something to trade. Civilizations have come and gone. I'm not saying it's the end of the world, I'm not, but hope for the best, plan for the worst. And gardening is a great hobby for your mental health anyhow. Exactly. <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Ivan, this is, oh, sorry, go ahead. Go. No, I, I was just trying to comment to you that this is not just about the wealth, but it's also the mindset change. We got to take care of ourselves from a fundamental point of view. Farming not only take care of the subsistence of life, but it also gives you that peace of mind to think about, you got to do something really productive in order to survive in this very turbulent world. Yeah, 100%. And there's even people that they've done things like hooked up their washing machine to their garden, because I don't know if a lot of people know this, but the main reason why you have two types of waste water from your house, black water, which is sewage and gray water, which is really just full of soap and like food, food, like food, whatever you wash on the sink. That is fertilizer. The reason why that's pollution is that if it goes into a lake or a pond, it fertilizes all the aquatic life, which then explodes and sucks up all the oxygen and suck and kills the fish. But if you were to put that into a garden, you can fertilize your garden by doing your laundry. And so this is a, this is a problem. It's just being smarter with the resources that we have. And I think that just think, like you say, mentioned, we have to be smarter. We have to find ways to be more efficient and it's fun. You treat it like a game, try to have fun with it. I think that's another thing too, not to get stressed out. Don't get shut down by fear and have fun with it because none of this is going to matter in 5,000 years and we're all going to die anyway. So we, yeah, let's have some fun while we're, while we're doing it. I've been, You've given such great, I've got a couple pages of notes. This has been such a good call. Is there anything I haven't asked you that I should have asked you? No, I think there are your fast everything that I know. If you ask any more, I wouldn't be able to answer you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> if people want to learn more, if they want to get in touch, if they have questions or just want to connect, where's the best place for them to find and contact you? They can reach me on LinkedIn. I have my LinkedIn profile in there. They can send me an email at ivaneo at hotmail.com. 
Okay. And I'll be more than happy to discuss anything that anyone wants. Perfect. So that's Ivan Neo, I-V-A-N-E-O. You can look him up on LinkedIn. He's CFO, is the VP of Finance, Strategic Thinker. You'll find him there. Uh, obviously, based out of Singapore, you know you got the right one. And his Hotmail was Neo at Hotmail.com, correct? That's right. Yeah, perfect. Ivan, thank you so much. I just enjoyed this conversation. I've, I think people may want to listen to this more than once just to get all the nuggets out of it. Thank you for coming and sharing with me and my audience. So hopefully we can all perform a little bit better. Thank you, Daryl, for the invite. It's really a pleasure talking to you and being invited to your podcast.